This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 13, Episode 6. Update from Lviv, Western Ukraine. Talking with Oleg Tolmachev, Head of Production, Naftogas, Ukraine's Natural Gas Corporation. Good afternoon, Oleg, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Glad to be here. Oleg, as we move into the second week of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the assault on Ukraine cities is intensifying. Give us a sense of what it's been for, like for you on the ground. Well, Jim, it's, it's something that's very unimaginable. Nobody thought that this was going to come in this kind of form and this kind of intensity. The, uh, the first morning when it, was hap- when it was happening, I woke up in my bed thinking that somebody set off fireworks outside. I did not see any fireworks. I checked my phone and then I realized that uh, the war has begun. And this was actually cruise missiles uh, coming towards Kiev. Hmm. Uh, and so from day one, it, it was everybody's worst nightmare. Nobody could have thought this was going to happen. The shift that we've seen from the early days to where we are now is the expectation of Vladimir Putin that uh, Ukraine, once uh, its military installations got hit by cruise missiles, was just going to lay over and uh, hand the keys to the city of Kiev. That did not happen. Actually, Ukrainian military and uh, volunteers put up a fierce resistance. And then the, the paradigm began shifting, and the Russian Federation actually began targeting civilian infrastructure as opposed to just military, inflicting mass casualties among the civilian population of cities like Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kiev, Nikolaev, Akhtyrka, just to name a few, to, to demoralize the population, uh, to, to sow the seeds of fear, you know, get the country to capitulate. So it, it's, a, it's a very nasty type of war, a lot of civilian casualties, but you have to see it here the the morale is incredible and the spirit is high you know grandmas are making you know molotov cocktails people are enlisting in territorial defense and i'm not kidding you and actually my company enough to gas on its website and and mind you this is the national gas company on its website they've published the recipe for the molotov cocktail my good that, that just give you the sense that ukrainians are all in in this fight they're they're fighting for their homeland it is becoming extremely bloody and, and nasty. So that's, that's, that's where we are. I expect that the next you know, week or so, unless uh, somehow they reach a ceasefire, is going to get even more nasty and even more bloody. Oleg, give us, give us a sense of your background. I know you're a graduate of the University of Oklahoma, where you got your degree in petroleum engineering. Give us a sense of your background and how you ended up working for Ukraine's natural gas company there in Ukraine. Stepping back a little bit, I was, I was born in Belarus, grew up in Kazakhstan. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to come to uh, study petroleum engineering at the University of Oklahoma, so my wife and I I uh, came in, in late 90s, uh, in 99, actually mid 90s. In 99, I graduated and I worked for uh, several companies, including BP, Chesapeake, and Canada Oil and Gas. Uh, through my career, I started out as a very nerdy, techie engineer. Uh-huh. Uh, and then towards the end of my career in US oil and gas, I became an executive. And so in uh, <clears throat> 2020, 
my company, Montage Resources, where at the time I was EVP and COO, was getting ready to transact or be acquired by Southwestern Energy. So that gave me an opportunity to sort of step out with my with my package, start thinking about what's next. And so while I was going through my non-competes, you know, hiking in Colorado and taking pictures of animals in Tanzania, uh-huh. not the gas recruiters came to me and, and talked about this job of uh, director of production for this national company. And it's sort of mind-boggling because I now have 6,400 people reporting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by U.S. measures. That, that is a lot of people. Sure. And, and frankly, what, uh, what made me take this job is that Ukraine is producing, uh, it's about 30% short of gas that it needs for its industrial needs and heating people's homes. Mm-hmm. It's very dependent on the Russian pipe uh, for its natural gas. I saw an opportunity to turn Ukraine into, or parts of Ukraine maybe into another Texas or Louisiana, where uh, very quickly with technologies that we have developed in the, in the United States during the shale revolution in the last uh, 10, 11 years, we could significantly ramp up Ukrainian production and really create a very drastic geopolitical shift in Ukraine, but uh, also in Europe. That's a very impressive background. Tell me, at this point, with Ukraine being two-thirds self-sufficient in natural gas, and with your background in shale production and fracking here in the United States— what what's the future once this war and invasion is is out of the way what's the future for ukraine and when can ukraine become fully self-sufficient in natural gas and perhaps a next a net exporter because i guess that's part of the part of the plan well first of all i have to give props and really say thanks to the personnel of not the gas that's producing gas uh, sometimes under enemy fire mm. as a matter of fact our production has declined maybe 1.2% uh, during all of this. That's incredible. Uh, with about, yeah, and, and by, by sort of gross production footprint, 80% of that is either right where the fighting is happening or behind the front line Gosh. or right in front of the front line. So Ukraine's been ready for this. It had a lot of contingency plans. It was not a surprise. So, you know, we're just following the algorithm. So what's next for us? You know, I personally don't think Russia can win uh, this war, even if they take Kiev, uh, they would not be able to hold the country. So uh, at some point, and it's anybody's guess whether it's going to be one month or two months or six months, we are going to start returning to semi-normal life here. Mm-hmm. But what's going to be different this time and, and what's going to be different for Naftagas is that through all of this uh, ordeal, Europe will understand, if it doesn't already, that energy independence uh, from uh, Putin's Russia is very important for Europe. It's very important for its infrastructure, for its industries, for people's homes. Right now, if you look at the landscape of where the hydrocarbons are in Europe and and the production, it is obvious that Ukraine possesses a significant resource base that can be improved and uh, really developed by utilizing the same technology we have perfected in the United States uh, during, during this whole shale revolution, right? So if you if you match technology and operational efficiency with the resource base uh, and infuse with capital to create uh, ca- capital budgets in about, in my opinion, about five, six years, Ukraine can become energy independent. Mm-hmm. We can bridge that gap of 10 billion cubic meters per, per year that it's short. And I would say in seven, eight years, we can export uh, natural gas into EU, which would be huge uh, for Ukraine in terms of just tax revenue, jobs, 
overall country development, lowering the price of, of energy for its industries, but also for Europe, it will be a very difficult, a very different political calculus uh, now that it has gas coming from somewhere other than Russia. Well, let's come back to the geopolitics of the current situation, because on the one hand, we have Russia, we have the Nord Stream pipeline. Germany was going to be the largest single customer for that. And then based on U.S. pressure and I guess also the fact that the Germans finally realized that they couldn't let themselves become dependent, more dependent on the Russians for natural gas, that program got shut down. But what you're saying, Oleg, is that with the greater development and more investment in nafta gas here in Ukraine, that there's an opportunity for the EU to get to, to have to diversify its source of natural gas from an independent Ukraine. That's right. You know, when you're looking at where can Europe get gas right now, if it's not Russia, right? So you have the North Sea, uh, where the gas production is declining. You have perhaps France, perhaps parts of Britain, where they don't allow fracking. You uh, you have U.S. that can export uh, LNG and probably will be significantly increasing LNG exports. And you have the Middle East. And in my opinion, it will take probably all of those players to create uh, energy stability in uh, in Europe. And mind you, you know, Russian gas has been very cheap, right? That's why Europe is never too worried about uh, developing, you know, Plan B and Plan C, which could be more expensive. But now geopolitically we understand that this this comes with strings attached my sense is that uh, the europeans you know viewing the natural gas as a transitional fuel until we get to your renewables that can provide all of our energy needs will be a very good option to diversify and and really to hedge the risks uh, from the geopolitical standpoint frankly uh, from what I'm seeing here, the resource potential for natural gas production and condensate and oil actually uh, as well uh, in Ukraine is very, very significant. Uh, so uh, I'm actually very excited about it. That's why I'm still here in Lviv. That's why I haven't left uh, the country. I do, not want, I do not want to do that because I think that even, even during this war, we can move the ball forward, getting ready to execute in this program. I like that sense of optimism. Let's just come back to the China-Russia pact, because apparently in that, China, of course, is a, is a net consumer of natural resources, and they look at Russia and they see oil, they see natural gas. China, of course, could be a natural additional market for Russia's natural gas if Germany and Western Europe turns shuts off the pipeline. Any thoughts there on how the, the entrance of China into being a big consumer of Russian gas or potentially Ukrainian gas could be a wild card? It would be very difficult for me to imagine Ukrainian gas going to China because you'll probably have to go through Russia to get there. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we should not, we should not uh, have lost on us is that to produce oil and gas, you need certain technologies. Some of those technologies are actually very advanced, uh, such as various uh, rotary steer- steerable tools, which is actually how you, for example, orient your drill bit in a horizontal well or complex vertical wells. Uh, you have, you know, different electronics that we use. You have different, you know, drilling and completions know-how. So basically, if you if you start kind of uh, stripping away the technology or technological part of the oil and gas operations, it, it it's going to drop volumes. It's going to devolve. 
and, and it's not going to be as efficient. Uh, so I think uh, Russia's oil and gas, uh, albeit it's a very large enterprise, uh, will probably see some decline in in its production. And uh, I don't know how China is going to view it. You know, they've kind of been very careful during this whole conflict. My sense is that anything to do with Russia has been so toxic and radioactive mm-hmm. that China will have to be very careful uh, dealing with Russia, uh, even you know, for the hydrocarbons that they need. Mm-hmm. Let's just come back to that stat that you threw out there, that during this first week, 10 days of the Russian invasion, that only there's only been a 1% decline in Ukrainian natural gas production, and that many of those natural gas deposits are are actually in the war zone and behind enemy lines. That's a very impressive result, and I guess it speaks to it speaks to the toughness of those wellhead workers, and also to the to the leadership at NAFTA Gas. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the gas production in Ukraine is viewed as a part of a critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, and actually, the same thing is in the United States. Because of that, and because this country has been in an unannounced war with Russia for eight years, people really maybe haven't thought about that. But since 2014, uh, Ukraine had uh, Crimea annexed. It had uh, uh, parts of its eastern uh, regions annexed as well. So that, that has never ended. As a consequence, Ukraine was fully aware that at some point it's going to fester and it's going to wind up uh, in a conflict or a war that we see right now. So corporately, uh, all of the critical infrastructure owners or or stakeholders have algorithms of contingency plans of how to operate uh, during the war, including NAFTA gas, right? Mm. So we have very succinct algorithms that tell you, here's how you operate if it's behind enemy lines, you know, how does your logistic work out? How do you resupply uh, your wells with different chemicals, materials? How do you move around diesel? All those things have been planned and pre-planned and, and, and really thought through. So that's one. Uh, and the second thing is uh, people are actually quite heroic in how they execute uh, on, on this because they understand that they're working to hit uh, homes in their own village or the, the city next door, uh, that if we experience significant losses in gas production right now, people are going to start freezing in their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ukraine is cold and it's still the heating season right now. So people are, people are highly motivated and, and they kind of view it as a personal war to, to continue providing the country with natural gas because otherwise there's going to be a lot of, a lot of problems. Uh, that's, that's kind of the state of affairs here. We're seeing that Ukrainian drive and determination to, at all cost, try to maintain services, try to oppose the Russian invasion, and it's good to know that even when it comes down to the infrastructure of getting the natural gas out of the ground, getting in the pipeline, getting it delivered to people's houses to keep them warm, kudos to the Ukrainians for doing that and to NAFTA gas for having those contingency plans. Let's move on to geography because everybody here in the United States has become an, uh, an expert in Ukrainian geography. Every day, every night, we see big maps of the Ukraine. Tell us what regions of Ukraine, which is about the size of Texas with a population of 44 million, tell us what regions of Ukraine are the the large natural gas deposits found? uh, My company has two big uh, kind of business units or, or field operation centers. 
So one is in the east. It's in, in the east of uh, Kharkiv region. You have Kharkiv region, also Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, one is in the center. It's in Poltava region. And then one is in the west, you know, in Lviv, Adel Lviv, where Adel Lviv and the Carpathians. If you, at some point, take a look at the geological map, what you will see is that this huge Dnieper uh, structure mm-hmm. that that's that overlays like basically like 40% of the country. So Dnieper Donetsk structure. Uh, so it's enormous. Uh, the company actually, uh, Naftogaz as a whole, has about 30,000 employees, but the ENP Exploration Production Division has about 17,000 employees. Hmm. So it's a, it's a very big operation, and it covers a very large geographical area. Basically almost, I would say, like at least 60% of the country. Now, of course, that's out in the field. Your headquarters, your office was in Kiev, and now you're located in Lviv. When did you make the move, and has that is that the case for all of the senior managers of Naftogaz? Well, I can't, I can't speak for uh, the senior management because of security concerns. I see. But we have been relocating people, uh, management, to uh, Lviv. Uh, and frankly, we have a lot of people that have been in the middle of very heavy fighting. So, so we, the company has been working tirelessly to evacuate those people on buses and, and figuring out different uh, egress routes out of the, the hottest conflict zones. And then the people are offered office locations here in Lviv, uh, also some other cities that have uh, offices of our affiliates or sister companies or even just other oil and gas companies that are offering their office space and lodging uh, so that our employees can can be in a safe place and continue working to to produce gas. Mm -hmm. Now, with it being such a large country and with the natural gas deposits being spread in the east and the center and the west, we've heard a lot about the Russians targeting the communications infrastructure of Ukraine, TV towers, the cell phone towers, etc., have the communications infrastructure held up? Because obviously that's very important to a company like yours that has operations throughout this very large country. Well, communications have uh, held up surprisingly well. And frankly, when when we were discussing in our pre-planning meetings, of course, we all knew this was coming to some, uh, I guess, probability. The first thing we thought was that the cell signal will be lost and it's going to be gone mm-hmm. and that the internet will be gone. And if you actually look at some live updates of what's happening and look at Twitter, you will see that in most cities, communications are up and the internet is up. So for us, we have very uh, robust uh, communication systems. And uh, and really, from that standpoint, we have not experienced any, any issues, whether it is now, uh, whether it is with preceding, with cyber attacks preceding this war. Really, the company has been very well prepared from a digital standpoint to actualities uh, such as this one. Well, that's very impressive. And in fact, our connection today, Oleg, is first class. You could be sitting in the next room to me and you're 10 time zones away in uh, Western Ukraine. So that's a great example of the, the high quality infrastructure, communications infrastructure that Naftogaz hasn't played. Let's come back to the personal side. Here you are in Western Ukraine, you're in the middle of a war zone. How are you coping from a personal point of view, your day-to-day life? Where do you, can you go to a restaurant? Can you get to supermarkets? How are you coping just personally with running your business on a full-time basis and at the same time doing it under wartime conditions? 
because of the war, we have switched our operations to seven days a week. You know, I go to the office seven days a week. We've become busier, obviously, because we still need to run operations. But now we have a variety of logistical challenges that we have to deal with to resupply our operations with different types of uh, equipment and, and chemicals, etc. You know, I'm, I'm trying to help uh, friends of mine or, or friends of my friends that are coming from uh, Kiev to get those people hooked up with some kind of lodging here uh, or get those guys to uh, to the border if they want to go to Poland or, or Hungary. So for coping, it's just being busy and a lot of things going on, a lot of things are happening. So, you know, being busy is, I think to me, it's the best coping mechanism you can think of. As far as just uh, life overall, a bunch of small boutique stores downtown Lviv are closed. But if you kind of step out of downtown, you'll have big shopping centers that are open, that are busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the grocery stores all over town uh, are open, drug stores. So you, you kind of, as far as like the stores and restaurants, it almost reminds me of a COVID lockdown, right? So some places are closed, a bunch are open. You can go to either restaurant right now. Of course, you know, we have a 10 o'clock or 10 p.m. curfew, so you have to take that into account. Uh, but generally speaking, it, it doesn't feel like uh, Lviv is in the middle of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have air sirens a couple of times a day, so that's extremely annoying. But other than that, it, it doesn't feel like uh, like there's a huge conflict going on when you are in Lviv. Of course, if you go east, it becomes plainly obvious. Mm-hmm. Tell me, of course, we're entering the second week of this war, this invasion. Russia, of course, is still trying, hasn't yet landed in Odessa. They haven't yet marched into Kiev. It's a huge country the size of Texas, 44 million people. Do you think it's possible for Russia to occupy and hold the country? What do you think the outlook is for that? I don't think there's any way to occupy and hold this country. And the reason is that Ukrainian people have gone through two revolutions to get to where they are in terms of democracy. Mm -hmm. And they're not going back. So they're not going to tolerate a puppet uh, president. They're not going to tolerate invaders uh, controlling their life. They will be waging uh, guerrilla warfare if if the Russian Federation tries to do something like that. They're not going to surrender. So... These people uh, will fight for their freedom. They're highly motivated. Uh, if you look uh, at some of the videos people post online, you'll see you know, women with, with a child sitting in the car would uh, drive by a tank and hurl a Molotov cocktail. Uh, you know, elder, elder, and it's, it's no joke. Elderly mm-hmm. people sign up for territorial defense. Uh, you know, they're, they're walking around with AKs. The spirit of this country is unbreakable. Uh, therefore, you cannot hold and control it. Uh, even if you achieve some level of military success, you cannot control and retain this country. So my, my sense is I don't know when this is going to happen, the mechanism, right? But at some point, the Russian troops will pull out. Hopefully, it's going to be some kind of an agreement or, or a treaty, and rather quickly, because there's lots of innocent civilians that are being di- you know, killed mm-hmm. and wounded in this conflict. And frankly, Russia is using banned munitions, you know, these cluster bombs, yes. these vacuum bombs, you know, really a lot of casualties. So hopefully we will see it through a quick tre- treaty, uh, fast or some kind of peace deal. But if it's not fast, if it does, if it takes six months, at some point they will bleed out. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be much worse in Afghanistan. Frankly, the optics of this conflict is, is horrible for the Russian Federation, as are the sanctions that have already just destroyed its economy. So 
at, at some point, Ukraine will prevail, and I have no doubt that's going to happen. Oleg, in the remaining few minutes of our podcast, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners out there? Because we sit here, we watch CNN, we're watching the BBC, we're getting the coverage, but you're actually right there on the spot. It sounds as though company is making the best of a bad situation. You've given us some assurance that you can go about your day-to-day life, shopping, etc. Any Any closing thoughts for our listeners to put this all in perspective? I guess one of my closing thoughts would be what's happening in Ukraine to a very large extent is driven by the geopolitical ramifications of the energy business, energy independence, energy production, the how it influences on the politics of the European Union and Russian Federation. To me, it seems like uh, when the country is energy independent, when it can fulfill its needs, with whether it's nuclear, whether it's natural gas, whether it's oil or wind or solar, if it can fulfill its needs, industrial needs and residential needs, it is a lot stronger, it is a lot more resilient. Uh, and so what, what I'm learning, what we all should be learning, is that Ukraine needs to continue developing its potential in oil and gas uh, and transitional fuels. And this could be another lesson for the United States as far as uh, critical infrastructure uh, and being independent energy-wise mm. and not uh, not being reliant on countries with dirty politics or, or frankly, uh, completely unfriendly countries because at some point uh, it's going to become a huge issue, which is what's happening in Europe right now, you know, looking at gas prices, looking at fertilizer production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So energy independence, uh, very, very important. Do not underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Well, Oleg, I want to thank you very much for taking time out to join us today to give us this critical update. A lot of very valuable information here that we're not getting anywhere else. So once again, thank you very much for joining us today, and please stay safe. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, to subscribe. And go to the episode tab to listen to the past 250 shows, which are divided into 16 subject categories. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.